Oh, it's Friday morning. Good morning. And you know it's 10 o'clock. This is Babs Rolls Ivy. This is Love Babs, Love Talk. And in the studio today is my church sister and good friend, Dr. Cheryl Doss, who is a development economist. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about America. We're going to talk about Africa. We're going to talk about where she is teaching at Oxford. So we're going to have a really good discussion about ah, world things, <laughs> world things and developing issues. Hey, Cheryl. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. Come right close to it. I know. Is that better? This, yes, because she's very soft spoken. She's not like me. Like I have a big voice. She has a very soft voice. How are you? I'm good. How's everything? Very good. So now we had lunch yesterday to talk about this show. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Harry, thank you for producing today. So we're talking about the show. And we're talking about what you do because I've known you from church. We go to the Church of the Redeemer, UCC people. And all this time, I really didn't know what you did. I knew that you went back and forth to Africa and all parts around the world, but I didn't really know what you did. So tell us what a development economist does. Well, I can tell you what I do. (laughs) Um, So I'm an economist. I don't work on things like the stock market. I'm interested in what happens in developing countries, particularly really at the local level. So trying to understand how households make decisions um, to understand how what happens within within households, mm-hmm. so I've done a lot of work trying to think about whether, like, whether when men or women within households, how do they make those decisions? What kinds of economic factors matter? What gives women bargaining power to have some say in what um, in what the decisions are? Mm-hmm. So we know that, for example, in lots of places, when women earn more income or when they own some of the assets, they own some of their own property. Households spend their money differently. Mm-hmm. So when women own, earn more of the income or own assets, more of the money often gets spent, for example, on children, on children's health, children's um, education, often on food for the household as well. Um, so understanding, so it, it used to be that when people were making policies, they thought about increasing household income mm-hmm. and just thinking about the household without thinking about that it really matters who within the household earns the income. And controls the income. Mm-hmm. Um, that's true, not just in developing countries, but in developed countries as well, like in the U.S., where, yes. as you can imagine, uh-huh. when you earn money, um, when women earn money, they spend it differently than when yes. men earn in money. Um, but it has really important implications for policy, for thinking about when you put a policy into place, are you thinking about who it is within the household's going to earn and control that income? And now, we had a good conversation about land, because you were talking about land and how land in third world countries oftentimes do not pass to women. So, right. So when thinking about assets, land is one of the assets that, that really matters for women. Um, in much of the world, right, households earn their income through farming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so who owns the land, who controls the land, whether the, one of the real questions is the, the land that women are involved in farming, if their husband dies or leaves, do they have any rights to the land after that? Um, is it theirs or is it their husband's? And then it goes to back to his relatives, which could leave her with, with nothing mm-hmm. in order to support her, her children. Um, so do you think policy sort of allowing women to sort of be the successor or the receiver of land if spouses pass away or leave or whatever so that families can't come in and hijack the property. (laughs) (laughs) So there's two ways to think about it. One is if it's his, what happens to it when he dies and who inherits it? 
Right. Does she do wives inherit from their husbands? Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of it. The other is to think about what kind of rights to property does marriage provide? So in there's kind of a range of what the laws could be. It could be that everybody owns their own property and owns their own things and being married doesn't have anything to do with ownership. Or the other extreme is that everything that either person owns is owned jointly, mm-hmm. right? If it's all owned jointly, then when he dies, she already owns half of it. So you don't have to worry about her inheriting it. Um, so that's part of the question. What are the, what are those rules in various places about property within within marriage? And a lot of places in the world have something kind of in between where anything that's acquired while you're married is considered joint property, which is a real benefit for women, right? Because women tend to spend less time in the labor force. They tend to earn less cash. And so if it was just about each person buying their own things, then women tend to be worse off. Mm-hmm. If you assume that maybe the man's working and earning income or controlling the farm income and she's doing all the household kinds of things, that that's a joint enterprise, they should own that property together. Mm-hmm. Um, so having laws that that give women, not just that they inherit it from their husband, but that they're joint owners with their husband makes a real difference for the well-being of women, particularly when their husband when their husband dies or or leaves. And as we were saying yesterday, you know, think about when the marriage ends and that all marriages do end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one, so it's, one way or the other, right? One way or the other. <laughs> they only last so long. They only last as long as both people are alive, right? And so thinking about what happens for these women when their husband their husband dies and says women tend to marry older husbands in most of the world. Um, Is that it's true? It's a real matter. Yep. Oh. I mean, it doesn't have to be a lot older, but it's uh-huh, but... much more common for women, there to be some number of years between women and their husbands. Hmm. So what other kinds of things have you discovered in doing this work? Cause that's an interesting piece right there. Just that whole age difference, which I'm sure is worldwide. Like it's not unique to developing countries. Is it, is it? No, I think even if you looked at the, at places like the U S you would see probably on average husbands are a little bit older than their, mm-hmm. than their wives. When you, when you see it, very many years in the opposite direction, you really notice it, right? When there's younger men married to older, older women, women, you think, oh, so <laughs> <laughs> that's not, you know, it makes you think about it. So it's not what usually happens. And partly that's, right, that's because um, you want the men to be established and have their farmland and earn, be able to earn an income before they, they take a wife. Oh, okay, okay. Right? If you think about it that, yeah. in that kind of a way. yeah. So when we talk about women in these developing countries, like what are what kind of barriers are you seeing to their economic success? Like what what are the kinds of things that sort of impede their success? So some of it's the formal laws, right? So the 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 laws about property ownership. So if women can't or don't own the property of their farmland or of the business, and they're not seen as being an equal partner in it, that, that makes it harder for them to, um, to earn a livelihood. Um, I think the other piece is right, just the, the amount of time that women spend in the world doing <coughs> unpaid family labor, doing, taking care, raising children, taking care of children, doing the laundry, preparing the meals, all of which is 
hard enough when we're sitting here, but it's much, much harder <laughs> when, when you have to collect the firewood and you have to get the water from the, oh. from the streams, right? Yeah. And so there's just a huge amount of work, household work that women do that makes it harder for them to have the time to do other kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So any of those innovations that can make a difference for, um, and save, save some of that time can make a real difference mm-hmm. for, for women's ability to. So when you, when you go to the developing country, Cheryl, how are you received? Like, what is their thought about you or <laughs> what do they get from you? So there's probably a couple of levels of that in terms of the high level policy kinds of people. Um, Generally, I would only go if there's a reason for me to go and people are interested in, in hearing about what, how they might be able to change their policies or develop kind of programs that would really benefit and strengthen women. And by doing that, also allow the economy to grow and also benefit families more broadly. So I'm not sure that all governments would want me to come and tell them give them advice and and thoughts and have a discussion about what to do. But when I go um, often working, talking to government ministries or those kinds of folks about, or, or development organizations Mm -hmm. about what they might be able to do. The other thing is that um, actually going out into the field and talking to women um, themselves, they're always eager to have somebody who's listening to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so That's I, true just about everywhere <laughs> in the world. <laughs> I, I went a few years ago. I was in southern Ethiopia, down in an area where people are mostly pastoralists. So they're still traditionally following their herds of um, cows and camels around. And went and visited one of the women's groups. And we sat, we, we walked into this kind of open air meeting space. Um, and they were all they were all talking, 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 and I, I didn't understand what they were saying because I don't speak the local language. Um, and finally, somebody translated. One of the men had to translate because the women didn't speak English. So one of the men kind of finally says, "They want to know what your name is." So I told them my name, and then I could hear them all trying to practice <laughs> my name. <laughs> and we had this long conversation about what was going on with them, um, and it. And it had to go through actually two translators to get to from my language in English to their local language. Wow. Um, because nobody spoke, nobody spoke both their language and English well enough to translate. So we had to have a middle person go through Amharic, the, the, the national language in Ethiopia. So, and I had these men translating. So I would say this long thing. And then it, by the time it got to the women, it was shorter And then the women would say this really long thing to me and I could watch their faces and see what they were saying. They were really animated. And by the time it got translated twice to me, I would get about one or two sentences. Wow. (laughs) And at the end of it, the, the woman who was the leader of it, she came over to me and she took my arm and she just started talking nonstop in her local language. And my first reaction was to kind of panic and think, I don't know what she's saying. And then I just looked at her and I thought, I know what she's saying. Mm -hmm. So I just listened. I watched her face and then I responded in English and we had a much nicer conversation. (laughs) (laughs) It was clear that it meant so much to her to have somebody, not so much that I was, you know, 
important or whatever, but just that there was somebody from outside who was coming to talk to the women Mm -hmm. rather than just coming to talk Mm -hmm. to the men. So in that sense, I think there's a, people really appreciate it. They, they appreciate the fact that you're taking them seriously and coming to hear what they, what they have to say. Mm -hmm. So yesterday when we were talking about this, we were talking about, you know, so much of Africa, some of, a lot of it is stable. A lot of it is not stable. And so uh, does that affect what you do and when you go and how you do the work that you do? Some of the instability or not? It does. I try not to go into war zones <laughs> as a general rule. <laughs> I'm not sure what I would do that would be useful there. Um, I mean, I think there are there are useful things that people can do when there's actually conflict going on. I worked, the first place I ever lived and worked in Africa was in Liberia. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was before the war started. So in the 1987 and 88. And then then there was sort of off and on 20 years where there was conflict for much of of the time. Um, And I have gone back after that. haven't found most of the people that I knew because people fled, they left, right? N- nothing was the same 20 years later after 20 years of, of conflict. I was involved in a project where we were trying to think about land and women's land rights in that context and trying to figure out, um, right, wh- when you have a situation where everybody has left and now mm-hmm. people are coming back, Lots of people left the rural areas and moved into the cities. There's been lots and lots of conflict over land. The little bit of land that was actually formally titled, uh, all the records were destroyed, right? So there's no formal records on what what people had owned. So people were, the government and some of the um, sort of development organizations, nonprofit, civil service, um, civil society kinds of organizations were trying to figure out what to do about land in that context. And so I was involved a little bit trying to make sure that as they were thinking about this, they were not forgetting about women's land rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that sense, but that's sort of post-conflict when there's a, when there's people trying to solve a problem afterwards. Um, So when you're going, when you're doing this work, like who hosts you? Like you don't just wake up and say, you know what? I just want to go over there and do my thing. Like, how do you, how are you invited? Who invites you and how do you get over there? How do you do it? That's a good question. And my students always ask me this too, because they say, well, what do we do when we get off the plane? How do we go do our research? Um, (laughs) So I've often worked with universities. So if I'm doing more of the research piece of things, um, trying to understand what women's land rights or women's property ownership is on the ground, I've often paired with people at a university mm-hmm. um, cause I don't have that kind of in-depth knowledge of a particular place. My, my knowledge is, is broader. And so it's really helpful for me to pair with somebody who really understands on the ground um, what they're doing. Um, I get often invited to come and participate in workshops with mm-hmm. um, either by international organizations um Sometimes governments, but like for the World Bank or one of the UN agencies might be doing a, a training or a workshop or holding some kind of a meeting in a local in a local country. 
and will invite me to come and participate. So that's often what I what I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's let's change gears just a bit, Cheryl, and talk about you and your background and how you you know woke up one day and became what you are. <laughs> so, <laughs> now you're not you're not from Connecticut. No, I'm not. So where do you hail from? Um, I grew. Well, I was born in Missouri. Oh, see, I, now I, that part I didn't know. I, I, knew, I knew you didn't know that. Um, <laughs> and I grew up in I grew up in Southern California, mm-hmm. and then I came to actually out to Connecticut for my master's degree. I went and worked in Liberia for a while, Liberia, and then Arkansas, um, and then went to graduate school in Minnesota. So I think that's the four. It's not corners, but <laughs> of the of the U.S. Um, now, did you get your master's here at Yale? I did. Okay a master's in international relations. And I knew at that point that I was really interested in issues of women and, and developing country issues. Okay. So thinking about um, how, as all these things were changing in developing countries, how to make sure that women had a voice and that their concerns were being, were being heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at some point then I decided that I would go back to school again and do a PhD and, I decided to do it in economics. There's probably a couple of choices I could have done. I could have done it more in sort of the politics side of things or anthropology, but it was really clear at that point that the people who were working in on issues of development, that the people who had the power were the economists. Mm-hmm. They were the ones who had all these fancy numbers and sounded like they knew something and were really sort of dominating the conversation. And so I thought that if I wanted to be able to really play in that world and be taken seriously than what I needed was a PhD in economics. Mm-hmm. So I went to the university of Minnesota then and, and did that. So along the way you've got married and had children and I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I was in Liberia, my now husband followed me over there just after we, he was a year behind, we met at Yale. He was a year behind me um, in the same program um, and I went off to Africa and he came over when he graduated. Um, so, and then our first child was born halfway through my second year in the PhD program. Mm-hmm. So, Which I'm sure had its own challenge, right? It it did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my classmates were, I think he was actually due on the day that we had an, a midterm in macroeconomics. And oh. my classmates all were hoping that I would... I don't think most, most of them were men and I don't think they understood about babies, but they were all hoping that the, I would show up for the exam and somehow go into labor and they'd have to do like they do on TV and everything would get disrupted and they wouldn't have to take their exam. Um, it didn't happen that way. It was a much slower. <laughs> I took the exam. I finished the exam. About 10 days later, <laughs> we got this baby out. <laughs> so now your, your husband does what? He's also a development economist. Yes, because I know you all are like all over the place, sometimes on different continents at any given time. Right. We like it when we're on the same continent. We've only once or twice had the four of us in our household all on different continents at the same time. That makes me a little bit nervous. Now you have two sons. I have two sons. Who I taught in Sunday school and one is a grown man in a PhD program. Right. Oh, so James, right? Right. So now what is he studying? He's studying earth and environmental engineering. He's okay. modeling floods. 
So trying to understand when floods are going to happen and can we predict them Mm -hmm. better. So given how the world is, I think he's going to have a job. (laughs) I think he will. Pretty much. And so your youngest son, Simon, Simon is a freshman at at Yale. Yes. Now, James went to Yale, too. He did. He did. Now, were you were you struck that they wanted to go follow in their parents' footsteps? I'm like, well, go to Yale as opposed to going somewhere else. It's I think it's always interesting for kids who grew up in New Haven to figure out whether they want to go to Yale or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think some of them want to go as far away as they can. Um, so I think James realized when he visited that for the kinds of things that he was interested in doing, and he's also very involved in New Haven and a lot of social justice issues in yep. New Haven and in high school, um, that actually there was a lot of resources at Yale available to try to make some of those changes happen. And so he got really excited about all the possibilities that there were for being at Yale. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you're not living in the U S anymore or at the moment, where are you these days? I'm now teaching at Oxford university <laughs> in the department of international <laughs> development. I just think that is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> After being at Yale for a, a while and you for just, 17 years, that's a good while. And then you just sort of, now your husband is already there, right? He's he already... was already there. He had taught at Williams College for a number of years um, and was ready for a change and got offered a job at Oxford just about the time our youngest was in high school. Mm-hmm. But the terms at Oxford are pretty short. So he was able to kind of commute back and forth mm-hmm. a little bit um, and spend a lot of the breaks here. And we went over some. Um, but then this last year, Oxford offered me a job as well. And since I no longer had kids at home, it seemed like a good moment to pick up and little did I know how good of a moment it was going to be to be out of the country. (laughs) So So, yeah, so we talked a little bit about the whole Brexit issue. Right. And what that looks like over there when you talk to people or not talk to people. I don't know. How does that, what's the conversation like? So in and around the universities, um, I think people were just very, very upset about the Brexit decision. Um, the The people who voted most to stay in the EU were people in in the cities mm-hmm. and in the in the university towns and the young people. So at a university, that's who's who you're around. Um, so I don't know if I've actually really had conversations with people who said that they had voted for bre- for Brexit mm-hmm. and to leave. Um, I mean, it's not clear what's going to happen with, with universities, for example. And currently the way it works is that students anywhere in Europe, basically it's the equivalent of paying in-state tuition to, to go to, to any go to school. any school and there's anywhere. A, a certain fluidity to that, right? Like you just in and out wherever you want to go. If there's someplace somewhere you wanted to go, you just kind of go and you just go and you have, I mean, we have people from all over the world at Oxford and, but also the students from the UK go all over, go mm-hmm. all over Europe. And so people, they can spend a semester or a year studying somewhere else, or they'll get one degree in one country and then go do their master's degree somewhere else. So the, the young people have all grown up with this notion that you could just come and go mm-hmm. um, quite easily. And go work somewhere else. And so, yes, that's the other part of it. Just like go work somewhere. Just go work. Like Europe is like this big, big space that's fluid and open, and we could just all back and forth. And 
Right. And I don't know how many of them have partners, boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever that are from another country. And so they're going to go work there for a while. And Mm -hmm. then the partner is going to come with them for a while. And they're just, you know, all over and feel like that's, that's the way the world is. That's how they grew up thinking the world is. And so to suddenly be told that's going to change. No, it's going to change. And you won't have this fluidity. You won't be this movement, this ease of movement that you have now. Right. And I don't think anybody who voted for Brexit was really thinking about the fact of what that would do to limit people from the UK who wanted to work somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Right. They were all, a lot of the conversation was just about immigrants coming in. Mm -hmm. And that, and that, and that piggybacks on what I'm going to say next, because we are in that same state, right? Like people are feeling this, whatever they feel about immigrants, as though somehow or other there's hordes of them coming and taking, quote unquote, good jobs and infiltrating and all this kind of stuff. And to sort of see that happening there and to see it mirrored here is quite stunning. This is an interesting time, right? I think a lot of the rhetoric that happened around Brexit was the same kinds of things that we heard here. And after the vote, the same kinds of things, the same kind of just hatred spewing out of people, Um, people looking at um, people who didn't look like they were from there, telling them, right, (laughs) whatever that means, um, saying, oh, well, you have to leave now. We voted, we voted for you to, we voted for you to have to to leave and people, you know, those folks are all saying, we live here, we're citizens. We're, <laughs> I, right. Um, but that same kind of sense of we've done this vote and now, now the, now the world is going to be the way we want it and we don't want you, want you here. And mm-hmm. just that level of hatred is really frightening to yeah. to be around. I think, I mean, I, I feel it too. And it's, it seems to be just on an uptick. Like we haven't reached, we haven't reached the pinnacle of it yet. I think. You know, I think it's on, I just see it more and more and it's rising and I see it there. You know, I hear the news and I watch BBC and I watch Al Jazeera and I, and I see that and I'm like, you know, where, where have we gone wrong? And, you know, it's a little bit challenging. So it is challenging. Right. And I think in the UK, there was so much between the young people and the older people Mm -hmm. that there's a lot of conflict within families about that about what they voted for and you know people in their 20s and 30s looking at their grandparents and saying you know you just ruined you just ruined my life by voting this way and i think there was a fair bit of conflict in in households in the u.s too over this oh i think so i Um, think so you know it's it's quite stunning you know uh on both sides so so what does that do what does this do this current climate what does it do for your work? Does it affect you? I mean, does it change the way you go about what you do and where you do it from? Well, I think it's it's interesting to think about doing policy-oriented research, right? And, and there's kind of a notion that if you do good research um, and really understand the processes, that then, then governments will make good decisions. And it's not clear why we should think that about like African countries when we no longer do that here. (laughs) It's not clear that the evidence is what's being used. I mean, politics has always mattered too, but there's, I think we've had moments where we thought that evidence actually mattered for Mm -hmm. how we would go about, about making policy. So I think that bit's a bit of a challenge, right? What, how do you, 
how do you keep getting up every day and going and doing research to understand what's really going on when it's clear that the policymakers don't care? Yeah. And yet I think there's also ways in which that information can get used by not government policymakers, but by all the other kinds of organizations, grassroots groups, civil society who are um, trying to make other kinds of changes happen. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, for me, that's part of the way to think about it. A lot of the work that I do around women's issues on, on land, some of it gets fed directly into governments, but some of it also gets fed to sort of grassroots women's organizations um, so that they have better tools and better data to be able to make their case um, to governments, to to whoever's making those decisions. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, would you say there is a real interest in seeing women succeed in, in third world countries? I mean, do you do you think there's enough effort in that in that regard? So I think it's I think it's complicated. It's mm-hmm. a little bit there's there's always a sense of there are people who are really pushing for it, and there's people who are really understand that in order for everyone to be better off, we also have to women have to be better off. Mm-hmm. Um, when, but that seems to be a message that just seems to miss people. I think. Like when women are better off, households are better off, yeah. <laughs> children are taken care of, stuff gets done. But yet there seems to be <laughs> some disconnect between the reality of that and then what people actually do or don't do to support that. I, there are some people who, right, so I think there's the whole spectrum. There are, there are people who just don't get it. Um, and there are people who feel like it's all a zero-sum game and if women get any power or are able to control their own lives and make their own decisions that somehow the men are worse off. Um, but there's also, I think people who understand that, I mean, that it does matter. Mm-hmm. Um, both, both and, and people at every level who understand that it's really important for women to have livelihoods, to have some control and decision-making power and that that makes them better off, their families better off, but also has some impact on like overall on the, the, the whole economy. Yeah. Um, the whole society is better off. Yeah. Um, but there's, yeah. uh, there's tension there in Africa as well as here about those <laughs> issues. <so. laughs> that is true. That is you very know. true. I mean, we can't even get a woman president in this country. Right. Based on just, she's a woman and people don't like it, you know, whatever. So that's not her place. So, yeah. Right. You still hear that. I mean, you certainly still hear that. You still hear here, that. Yeah. As well as. We're in a developed country or so-called developed country. Right. Right. So. Right. You know. So now what's next for you? Like, what do you, what do you, what do you see yourself doing next? I mean, I know you're teaching now. You're a professor and that's wonderful. But where does the, re- where, where do you see the research calling you now? Same? Different? Is there something that you. You know, that you like, you know, I'd like to get in there and get into that. I don't know. I'm kind of at a moment where I'm, I'm sitting back and trying to think about, I'm trying to finish up a bunch of projects, but then trying to think about (laughs) as always. Right. But then really trying to think about what that next piece is. Mm -hmm. I do, I do a lot of um, work with the international food policy research Institute, Mm -hmm. which is one of the international agricultural research centers. There's, know like 15 or 17 of them around the world that most of them are 
working on particular crops and trying to breed better varieties of wheat and maize and rice for poor farmers. Because mm-hmm. um, we've got people trying to breed better varieties of maize for farmers in Iowa, but nobody's really thinking about farmers in marginal lands in Kenya, for So example. what does that mean? That, so that means, what does that mean? So that they can grow this without... So that it grows, so that it grows, so that it's... Um, resistant to the kinds of pests and diseases that are in that area. Mm-hmm. And that it also for some areas might be um, more drought tolerant. Okay. Um, okay. So better suited for those particular mm-hmm. fairly difficult kinds of kinds of areas. Now is that genetically modified stuff? Some of it is, but most of it's not. There's such a, um, Europe is so totally anti the genetically modified kinds of things that a lot of countries won't use genetically modified um, crops, mm-hmm. even even when they might be better for them because they're worried about them not being able to to sell it. Okay, um, so a lot of it's still done by traditional breeding of crops mm-hmm. um, rather than the genetically modified. Although there's such a uh, there's a real spectrum between we always talk about those two as though they're completely different, but there's sometimes what you're doing with gen- genetically modifying is it's, just doing the other thing faster, yeah. right? Not, not putting in <laughs> genes from, I don't know, fish into your <laughs> corn, which right. Um, and I think that's what people think. I think people think we're making like artificial intelligent food, right? right. Or and, and something. There probably is right. And, and some people would argue that there's a real slippery slope that if you allow any of it, then you're going to end up in with that all of with, it, with it all being, it. being controlled by big multinational corporations yeah, um, who, who won't really care. There's just the bottom line. The end game for them is money, money. Right. Right. So, hmm. all right. So, so you're, so you're interested in that. So I've been thinking a lot about, Food security issues. I think a lot about women farmers trying to understand how to increase productivity of of women farmers. And so I'll probably keep, I, I like going out and talking to women farmers. Mm-hmm. So I'll probably keep doing some of that. And so when you say women farmers, what are these women? That women are, in Africa who are just doing it, running just, the farms. They're, they're, they may be running their own plots of land. They may be working in on a household farm where they're doing contributing some things and their husbands are doing other things and their grown children are doing other kinds of things, but where women are really involved in, in farming. Mm-hmm. So now there are organizations that support this. I mean, I, I don't know much about women farming, so. Yeah. So there's quite, um, lots of the, some of the foundations. So I've done a lot of work with the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation. They mm-hmm. do quite a bit thinking about, agriculture and trying to improve agriculture. Um, and so I work with them on some of their, their women's programs, trying mm-hmm. to think about how to make sure that, that they're not just ignoring the women. Um, right. Cause so often somebody will come up with some new technology or something and they'll go in and they'll talk to the men about it. And you say, well, um, it's actually the women who are doing, doing the work. work yeah. Right. So there was a project in, in Mozambique where they were giving households, um, they were restocking the cattle after the after the war in Mozambique. Um, households had lost their cattle, and so they were bringing in some varieties of cattle that were um, mixed breed, sort of high productive 
the kinds of cows we would have here that had been crossbred with local cows so that they were suited for the local area but produced um, more milk. Um, and they were giving the cows to households, making one person from the household go and get training to learn about this. And so, of course, the household sent the men to go get trained. But these were cows, so each household would have one or two of them. They were kept in stalls and had to be, the food would, grass would be cut and brought in for them. Who's doing all the work? <laughs> it's all the women who are doing the day-to-day work on the, with the cows. They're not the ones who are being... Trained. Trained. Right. So then the program, when this got pointed out to them, that one of the reasons there maybe it wasn't, the cows weren't doing so well was that the people who were taking care of them didn't know <laughs> what to do. They started, say, they said, well, well, we'll have them train, we'll train a second person in the household. They didn't specify that it was a woman, but in most of the households, they took, the households would send a man and a woman mm-hmm. um, to it. And the project then was more successful because the women who were doing the work were then starting to get the training. Mm -hmm. So this seems pretty obvious, um, but it doesn't often, it doesn't happen. People's instinctive reactions when planning these programs is to think about the male heads of household. And that's a big deal. Like, I don't even think any, I would not have even thought, I guess because I'm very westernized in my thinking, but I would have never thought just, you know, men first. I just wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought, Okay, who's uh, uh, who's doing the work? Whoever does the work <laughs> can get the training because we need this to be, you know. But then I'm a woman, so I would think. <laughs> <laughs> so I would think that way. Yes. Okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. All right. So food insecurity, which is a big thing, right? Just about everywhere in the world, not just third world countries, right. but here too. Food insecurity is a big deal on a different level, on a different scope, but. Still food insecurity. Right. right? So. Yeah. And I just, I I try to imagine what it would be like if I couldn't, if I was worrying every day about feeding my children, right? Of the things that I have to be grateful for in this world, the fact that I don't worry about whether my children are going to be fed. um, Yeah. Is. And that's a, that's a big deal. Big deal. I mean, I, I remember my mother having that it thought. You know, there were moments when she was like, okay, <laughs> okay, we have to have to figure this out, you know. So I, I get that. I remember that very, you know, I, I remember that, those moments of, okay, hmm, right. what are we going to do? And then there were things that, I mean, there were places where she could go and, you know, where you could get support. But if you're someplace where that's not even a real possibility, like in some of these developing countries, right? Right. Like there's no place to go to remedy the situation immediately. There's long range planning and maybe some help from somebody, but not in the way that we have it here, I suspect. Right. We There's there's often programs, if there's a crisis, then there's programs yeah. to bring in food, um, which work moderately well they don't always get the food to where it needs exactly where it needs to go um but it certainly does does help mm-hmm. um, but there's not i mean the social safety nets in the u.s are being have been somewhat dismantled and are likely to be <sighs> completely dismantled but they still there still are some some safety nets here yeah um, and and you know and even if the even even as they are being pulled away 
organizations sort of rally around and rise up trying to support where those gaps are as those gaps happen, right? So you'll see organizations kind of rally around trying to build, you know, like food pantries and food kitchens and organizations, you know, doing these drives and what have you to fill in when the government starts to pull away or pull back or shut down and um, push people out. Right. Right. And, and traditional communities, I think everywhere, including, you know, think about rural communities in the U S or immigrant communities here have their own networks and, and I mean, communities create some social safety nets as well. Yes. Um, But it's harder when you're a really poor community and when you're, when, when everybody's struggling. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. People really do fall through the cracks. Um, Yeah. So what's the best part of your, uh, what's the best part of your job? What do you like best? I love the group of people that I get to work with. Mm -hmm. Um, My colleagues who are people from different universities, different institutions um, who are all working on the same kinds of kinds of issues. So we have a real community of um, mostly women, but not only women um, who are working on these kinds of issues. And so we'll end up getting to spend time together when we're at meetings, wherever we are around the world and having that kind of a community is just wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and being, and feeling like the work that I do, people are able to take it and use it to make a difference in their, in their communities. That's great. That's the part that's really fun. All right. What's the most challenging thing? airports (laughs) (laughs) did you sign up for the did you pay the fee for the for the quick get in you know oh definitely the global entry (laughs) so you get to do that quickly so that's always that helps um it's just the i mean i think air travel even over the last 10 years has gotten just sort of every time you turn around it's less pleasant Um, yeah the seats have gotten smaller, smaller, They're cramming more people on. Right. Um, Everybody's grumpy. <laughs> right. And there's delays and there's just, there's no glamor to the, you know, my friends will say, Oh, you're going where? And I'll say, yes, but I'm going, I'm flying for 20 hours and I'm going to be in meetings for three days and I'm going to get to go out and talk to people in, in a rural area for you know four hours and then I'm going to get back on the airplane. So, Sometimes that's although but, I, I catch you on Facebook because sometimes you you post these great pictures of like I think you're in Italy and somewhere and you were like oh look it's sunny <laughs> <laughs> well maybe I should start posting the pictures of I'm in the airport again <laughs> here I am in seat 57J of this airplane <laughs> because you know I mean I, I think there is some glamour to all the places that you get to go to not the places that you go are glamorous but that you get to go and see the world in ways um, that I don't know anybody else in my life who sees the world the way that you see the world. So there is, there is that. It is fun. It is fun. And your kids see the world too. You know, like Simon was somewhere for a whole summer, right? He's been in Costa Rica. Costa Rica. No, both the kids have gotten to travel. We've taken them places and they've done really different kinds of travel because what have they done when they've traveled we, we don't go to Europe and go to the theater. We go and, you know, we take a soccer ball. We always, we always traveled with a soccer ball and, um, 
you know, out in villages, they could always make friends if they had a soccer ball. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it was a, a really good perspective on the world for them, for them to have. Yeah. So, well, um, before you go, you're home now for the holidays. I am. So now how does that feel? It feels really nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Walking back into the house after having been gone for almost three months and, you know, all those things that I had meant to do before I left were still there waiting for me. <laughs> but it's nice to be back and, in this community, walk to church, walk and, to church and walk downtown and, yeah. and see all the people that are that are part of my community because it's still very much is my community here. Yes, it is. I think it will always be. I mean, I think this this is home. Right. Even though you'll live wherever. But, you know, so now how long are you here to? Uh, early January. OK. So home for a month. So you. Oh, so you've got a lot. It looks like being a college student, right? You just hang out and yeah i, I have work stuff. to do i have things <laughs> <laughs> i don't just get to sleep for the whole break like the college students but um gotta you know when classes start back up i've got to be ready to start lecturing uh -huh. so um i don't just kind of show up the first day the way they do so but, before um, we go talk a little bit about um your oxford experience experience and the students because we talked about that yesterday and how does that feel like do you like your students are they Engaging, what, what's it like? So I teach in the Department of International Development and most of the students that I teach are doing a master's degree in development studies. Okay. So there are students from all over the world who are interested in development issues, kind mm -hmm. of very broadly, broadly defined. So I have students who are, so they all have to do, it's a two-year program and they all do a, um, a master's thesis as part of their degree. And so they're all thinking now, my first year students are all thinking about what they're going to go do. And they're going to go do all kinds of interesting things. One of my advisees is interested in um, trying to understand how people think about work in Mexico City, the people who are Uber drivers. And oh. So he's going to go and think about where does driving for Uber fit into how work is defined and what kinds of rules and regulations make sense in a context like that for Uber drivers, right? Wow. Um, what fun, right? <laughs> I, I kind of like that, right? I'm, th I'm thinking about that now. I'm like, hmm. I know because we don't think about Uber being in no, other, places no other places in the world, right? Um, yeah. But they've got it in, I know they have it in Mexico City, in Uganda they now have Uber. Oh, get out. Um, so lots of places. Wow. Uh, and in Mexico, apparently there's complicated contracts because the drivers don't necessarily own their cars because uh -huh. they're not wealthy enough to own a car. So they're renting the car from somebody else. So he's going to look oh, at that whole wow. set of things to try to think about the institutions and how work happens in, in different places. That's fascinating. Um, right? How so work all, happens. All kinds of interesting things that, that students are doing. Wow. Well, that's good. I mean, you know what? That's the world. Oh, we have all three. Thank you, Harry. <laughs> three minutes. So you enjoy teaching. I enjoy teaching them. And it's really fun. I, um, when I was at Yale, I was in the, I taught in the master's program in international relations, which was a much broader range of students. Students were doing development, but also doing security studies or forestry, um, and sort of environmental issues or human rights, um, so that was great, but I'm really excited now to be in a program and teaching in a program where all the students are really thinking about development from mm -hmm. all these different perspectives. So oh, there's a great. great bunch of students. Yes. Well, yeah. it's so nice to have you because we've been talking about this for quite some time. We have. <laughs> <laughs> so now it takes you going all the way across the pond 
to come back so you could be on the show. I'm grateful. Right. Because right. when I say I'm here for a couple of weeks, you say, OK, now. <laughs> now. <laughs> well, thank you, Cheryl. This was lovely. Well, thank you. And I know that people will feel like they know a little bit more about you as people listen in. So so thank you all for listening today. This is my good friend, Cheryl Dosk, and um, she is a developing development economist. Um, so she's my guest today. And y'all come back and listen to the podcast. So, Harry, play me out. Uh, I'll be back next week. I don't know who my guest is, but y'all know I talk to the most interesting people. Bye now. <laughs>